Well, good afternoon or good morning to all of you. Very good to have this opportunity to speak with all of you once again. Uh, you know, it's been a very interesting year. I think all of us would say this most unusual year of our lives, at least for the majority of us. Uh, some of you may have had some other interesting years, especially those who are old enough to remember the Second World War or other situations you may have found yourself in. Uh, not everybody has the same experience in life, and some of you have had some very traumatic ones for sure. This year, as we all know, has been a, a very unusual year, and it's required flexibility and adjustments for individuals and for the church. Uh, one adjustment was how that we've conducted our services. We didn't know all the details that we know today. There's a lot we still don't know about this coronavirus. There are contradictions all over the Internet and in the news. But nevertheless, we didn't know exactly what we're facing, but it caused us to make decisions that uh, were not uh, easy to make, were not comfortable to make, but sometimes decisions had to be made. Uh, we, we recognized that venues were shut down. We were shut out of places to meet. And the weather is not always conducive to meeting outside every place. And so we made decisions about singing, about masking, about even whether we could meet. And that affected the holy days. It affected a lot of things that we have done this past year. And, of course, as we saw in the announcements, uh, Mr. McNair pointing out the giving out of the awards that we have, uh, the, the tokens of our appreciation, very small tokens, and uh, Mr. Greer will be getting one. I had the opportunity, he's been there 50 years, I had the opportunity of presenting a couple of those in Kansas City where Mr. Uh, Rand Millich is the pastor, and he's had 50 years of service, as well as Mr. Uh, James Wells, who is actually our longest-serving minister. So we have two of our, uh, whatever we call them, 50-year, 50, uh, 50, there's got to be a, a word for that, uh, awards or tokens of appreciation right there in Kansas City, and I had the opportunity of presenting those to them after services uh, following uh, Thanksgiving there. But we have others. Mr. Uh, Mr. Richard Ames, of course, uh, had his uh, 50th year some years ago and was re received a, a particular uh, gift at that time. In, in Revelation, the third chapter, getting into the subject that I have for you today, Revelation 3, uh, we, we go here quite often. It's not an unusual scripture to go to by any means. But in Revelation 3, it's talking about the Philadelphia era of the work. There was a literal church there, and then there is an era uh, of the church. And then there are individuals who can have a Philadelphian attitude throughout any of the times, or they can have other attitudes. But we believe that we are uh, striving to have a Philadelphian attitude at the time of the Laodicean era. And here in verse 11, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dr. Douglas Winnale gave a sermon a couple weeks back, 
a very fine sermon about pillars in the church. He speaks here of uh, making us a pillar. And he talked about what it means to be a pillar, a very fine sermon that will be sent out to all of you, uh, be put out there. And so I'm going to talk about one of the other metaphors that is used here, and that is crowns, which may be more than a metaphor, may be a, a literal one, but he's talking about not just the crown, but what it symbolizes here. So today I'm going to focus on Revelation 3.11, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And I'll be addressing several questions. They're very much on the minds of many of you. Uh, and which have and may still cause some to actually lose their crown. Uh, we have the situation of masks, of singing, which have become controversial in quarantines and cause some to leave uh, our fellowship here. And I'm not saying that because they have done that, that they have lost their crown, but nevertheless, we see from history that when people get disoriented in this way, oftentimes they just go out and uh, they, they throw away religion altogether. Or they begin to uh, be a part of a group that, that gets further and further away from the truth. And so, yes, they could lose their crowns. They could lose the fact that they are Philadelphians and speaking here of that reward. So I'm not trying to make judgments on anyone, but I'm just saying that this is something that can happen. And we've had people that have certainly had a different approach toward masks, singing, quarantines, and the one that we're facing very quickly, vaccines. And so I'm going to address these questions uh, in the sermon as well today. But Revelation 3.11 is a warning, and we need to consider the meaning of that warning. Uh, how can someone lose his crown? You know, he says, hang on to your crowns so that no one take it from you. So how can we lose that crown? This implies an outside force that no one take your crown. An outside force that can take it away. And so he says, hang on to it. Hold on to it tight. And that implies that you are in control of the situation. You with the help of God, of course. But you have some saying as to whether someone is going to take your crown or not. Otherwise, why would he give that warning in that way? So someone can take it away, but you have control of the situation. You, with the help of God, that you can hang on to your crown. So who is it that might take your crown? Well, let's look at a few scriptures. Let's go back to Matthew, the 24th chapter. Matthew 24, very familiar chapter for all of us, the Olivet Prophecy. And we're going to read verses 4 and 5 to start out with. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, he was talking to his, his servants there. He was talking to the apostles, and of course, he's talking to God's people down through time. He said, Don't let someone deceive you. Now, brethren, we have to understand that deception is something that happens to some of God's people. Some of God's people down through the years have been deceived by false doctrines. He says, for many will come in my name. They will come using his name, his authority, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So they come in Jesus' name 
and they say that Jesus is the Christ. They say the right things in certain ways, but in the process, they deceive many. Then down in verse 22, he says, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That's showing to us a time of, of great trouble that is coming upon this earth the potential annihilation of mankind. You know, we've gone through really less than a year of lockdown. And some of you have been locked down more than others. And it's very discouraging uh, the kind of lockdown that some of you have experienced, where you're, you know, controlled as to how long you can spend outside of your home and how many people can go outside your home. Uh, there, there are just some, some very oppressive lockdowns. Now, I'm not trying to make judgments on whether they should be or shouldn't be, but it is very difficult under those circumstances. I know that out in California, for example, uh, it's been a little bit more difficult. New York City is, is another one. Then here in Charlotte, we're pretty well wide open. We have to wear masks. We boast a social distance, which I think for the most part people comply with. But nevertheless, Traffic is going about. Restaurants are open to one degree or another. Some of them for indoor uh, dining. Some of them only outdoor, although it will be a little bit hard today and some other times for outdoor dining, unless they have heaters out there or takeout. But nevertheless, things are pretty wide open here compared to a lot of places in the world. And some, they enforce it with uh, guns. Uh, I noticed a picture down in, I believe, it was South Africa in some places where they had armed guards to, to enforce these things. And some places you cannot cross borders. They're just literally shut down. So it's been different for people. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it's going to get worse. And I hate to say it that way, brethren, but it is. And I think that if we understand the Scriptures, we all understand that. But remember, there is a reward. We're not going to get out of this alive. We might as well get used to that. Uh, death is coming to all of us unless we live till Christ's return, and then the body will, will die and be transformed instantly. But, you know, most of us may not experience that. Some of us may experience that time. But uh, I, I certainly don't uh, anticipate that I'll be there with uh, when uh, Christ returns uh, outside of the grave. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I, I'm, I've reconciled myself to the fact that I could very well die just because of my age, and several years have to go by, and after a certain age, things go wrong. They just do. Uh, Mr. Meredith uh, mentioned that to me, that after a certain age, uh, you get into your 70s, that things go wrong. And I didn't quite understand at the time, but now I understand a little bit more that things do go wrong with our bodies. And I don't mean something terrible has happened to me or anything like that. Please don't read into this more than, than I'm saying. But, uh, you know, a couple of years ago I had, uh, I don't know, a pseudo-pneumonia. I don't know what it was, but something that I had not experienced in the same way before. And we have aches and pains that take place. And uh, things do happen to us. Uh, we don't have a guarantee on eternal life in this physical existence. So, we have to understand that we are here for something far greater than anything we could have in this physical life. God has offered to us eternal life. There's a very good commentary out. Mr. Carl Harmdurks wrote a commentary that just came out this morning on eternal life. 
I would suggest that you go to our website and look up the commentary. A very interesting commentary, as he pointed out. If you were offered $10 million, uh, if you didn't tell a lie for a year, every morning you'd get up and you'd be telling yourself, be careful what you say. Uh, you'd be very, very careful because that $10 million is something you can imagine, something you can see, something that is tangible. You know that others have had it. You know that it's a possibility if the promise was made to you. Uh, you would be very, very careful. But God is offering to you and me eternal life as members of his family to live for all of eternity. And you know, the one thing that he's looking for, as I pointed out to our uh, living education students in a, a forum that I gave this, this last week, uh, Tuesday, uh, if you really boil it down to, to everything, what God is looking for is, can I trust you? Can I trust you? Are you going to be reliable? Can I know that you will be obedient to me throughout all of eternity? Are you being obedient now? Are you recognizing how I am working in this world today and where I'm working? And are you being faithful to that or are you doing your own thing? You know, these are very important concepts. I hope that you'll look at that commentary by Mr. Carl Harmdirks. I hope you'll think about uh, trustworthiness, because that is so very important. And you can get away with things with human beings, but you can't fool God. And there has to be consistency of character that is being built within each one of us. As he says here in verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs, or false messiahs, and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I think the old King James says uh, the very elect, and some have taken that to mean that, well, there's the elect and the very elect, uh, meaning a higher stage of elect. I, I think the new King James puts it really properly as it should be, uh, that uh, even the elect, even the elect, or the, even the, the very elect, that's you and me, uh, can be deceived uh, if, if possible. And it is possible if we allow ourselves to be deceived. But we have control over whether somebody's going to take our crown or not as long as we stay close to God. And God will be with us and he will be merciful to us. But we have to recognize that uh, there's going to be great deception. I know there's one person out there who says that uh, Donald Trump is going to still be in the office, that uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about Mr. Biden. Well, you know, that person's sticking his neck out. I, I'm sure he's got some scripture that he's talking about there, but uh, never, and I know he does, but uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's reading something into scripture that is just simply not there. And, you know, but what, what if somehow Mr. Trump is able to pull this out? Would everybody just run over to that person? Well, you know, it says here that there are going to be people that perform signs and wonders and no doubt make predictions that do come to pass. Of course, they fail to realize all the predictions that that individual and other individuals have made that have not come to pass. They forget that, and they only see the one that might, and, uh, and maybe follow after that. He says false Christ. They're going to show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You know, these are individuals that can take our crown if we allow them. 
Notice over in Acts, the 20th chapter, because this talks about individuals that are not necessarily outside of the church of God in some way. But this talks about those who are within the church of God that can take away our crown. Notice beginning in verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So those are the ones that come in, and they seem to be a part of us there for a short time. Or they uh, influence people. They, they, they come in as a prospective member and begin to teach things that are not correct, and they take people away. But also, verse 30 says, also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. That's within the church of God will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, he says, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He pleaded with them. And there are expressions in Paul's epistles where he says, you know, I, I plead with you. I, uh, you know, the, the various words like that, uh, where, where he is pleading with the members of those congregations or those areas uh, where, where he was he was crying out to them please listen to me as he said and he is pleading with us through these words here uh, to recognize that he had warned us of these things and when you look down through the history of the church of God uh, I've, I've been here if you go back to uh, when I first started attending church that was 1964 that's uh, some 56 years and uh, a little over 56 years now. And what have we seen? Well, we see this individual or these two or three individuals. They go off and do their own thing. Back in 1974, there were a group of, uh, I, I forget, uh, several dozen ministers and about 3,000 people on the East Coast here. When the church was far bigger, uh, but about 3,000 people that left over certain things. And where where have they gone? What have they done? When you look on, on where they are, they, they basically, yes, they're out there. They have little followings here and there, but they were scattered and they were divided. And that's been the history of the church. And those of us who have been around recognize that these things happen. And that's why we don't get overly upset over these things or lose a lot of sleep, because we recognize the Apostle Paul had that problem back then. He said it would happen. Even if you go back to Moses, he said that he knew after his departure that Israel would go astray. And so we see these things happening over and over and over again. Now, when these individuals who are drawing away followings after themselves here in Acts 20 that he describes, did they suddenly say that we don't have to keep the Sabbath or the holy days? Well, some may. We've had that happen. But we've also had people who just divide the flock and go off and, and really don't do anything. They don't do the work, as, as Mr. DeSimone was talking about here, the importance of doing the work and boldness to do the work and encouraging us to pray about that. And I certainly would put my, my stamp and amen to what he was saying there to pray for God to give us not, not just good health, but, but boldness to do the work of God and uh, to help us in that way to, you know, all of our ministers, especially, uh, as he pointed out, the evangelists, but, but also all of our ministers to have that boldness to do the work of God. And, uh, you know, we have many ministers that are, you know, very bold in that and want to do the work, and we're very thankful for that. But 
they didn't all just say the Sabbath and the holy days are done away with, but they just scatter and they damage the work of God by taking people away and diminishing our ability to do the work. And yet they may still be Sabbath keepers. Uh, they may still keep the holy days, but they have divided the flock and that's a problem. And that's not something that God looks too lightly upon. So, who is it that might take your crown? Well, as we see here, false messiahs, and then we have savage wolves, and even so those who come from within. But it doesn't have to be a religious leader of any kind to take your crown. The Bible counsels us to choose our associates very carefully. To choose our associates carefully, our close friends, our associates. Notice over in Psalm 1, the very first psalm, and I believe I gave a sermon on this. I don't always remember the, the, the names of them, titles of them, but uh, nevertheless, if you look through our sermons, uh, uh, you can find these things there. And the first psalm, uh, we have in the first verse, it's, it's interesting, you can take this apart in a very interesting way, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands on the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now there's a lot to that verse, a lot more than, than we realize. We just kind of read over that and say, well, blessed is the man who's not a sinner. But notice there's a progression. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk along with the person who is ungodly. That's not his close companion. Nor stands in the path of sinners. So you walk and then you stand in the path. You stand with them as it were. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's a progression of walking, standing, getting more interested and then sitting and becoming a part of the scornful, a part of the cynical ones that are out there. You know, and it speaks of scornful. Scorn is a noun, uh, and it means open contempt or disdain. Open contempt or disdain. As a verb, means reject in a contemptuous way. You reject something or someone in a contemptuous way. But what does contempt mean? What does contempt mean? Well, it's the feeling that a person or a thing is worthless or beneath consideration. In other words, your feeling toward the individual is so, so negative that you write that person off. And is this not the attitude that we see in our divided world? We have come to the place, brethren, where we not only disagree with someone, but if we disagree with that individual, we put him in the category of not being worth listening to, not being worthwhile. We are so divided that we put people either in favorable or unfavorable category. Uh, Internet, uh, Facebook, uh, these types of things. You, you can defriend somebody because they said something that offended you. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sometimes defriend somebody because we simply don't want to listen anymore. When someone is, for example, criticizing the church and everything, well, we, we should put them out. We, we shouldn't invite them into our house, as it says there in, in one of John's uh, later epistles, it's the, uh, 
second or third epistle, I forget which it was, but uh, someone comes to you without this doctrine, don't invite them into your house. There, there is that point. But there are so many other issues in this life where we just write people off. We don't want to listen to them. We don't want to hear them because they're either a good person or a bad person, either a conservative or a liberal, as an example. And if they're liberal, then there's nothing they can say that could possibly be right. And if they're a conservative, there's nothing that they can say that wouldn't be, that, that, that would not be right, or vice versa. It goes both ways. And we need to understand that Satan is trying to divide us. He is dividing this world terribly so. You know, there are certain people that we do need to avoid, however, not because of the fact that they might have uh, some different way of looking at something, but uh, we're, t we're talking about certain attitudes and approaches. For example, in Proverbs 29, the 29th proverb, the chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 29 and verse 22, it says here, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Uh, Mr. Michael Haycoop up in Canada has a program. I don't think it's out yet. Uh, could be, but anyway, he, he talks about the news media. I think that's still to come out. And, and he points out that the, the media thrive on anger. Uh, they, they want you angry because, you, they know, because they know you will come back. And, and they, they feed on anger, and they, they uh, stir people up. The, the, the liberal side of things, if you listen to MSNBC as the worst here in the United States, and I'm sure there's, there's these places in different parts of the world, but there, there is nothing that, that Mr. Trump has ever done that would be positive. And if you listen to, in, uh, to uh, Fox News, it, it's pretty much the opposite, although there is a little bit of criticism from time to time. But basically... Uh, it's all Mr. Trump is, is right. Uh, that, that's here in the United States. And I know you have your political uh, situations where you are, and it may be as bad or maybe a little bit better, but uh, that's what we face here in the United States. And it, it is either this or that. It's either good or bad, but depending on which side that you're on. And he says here, you know, an angry man stirs up strife. And that's what we're seeing in our world today. We see people who are angry, who are bitter, who stir up strife, who stir up uh, protest in some case. And protest may be in our world. We understand it. Not that we should be involved in it. But then you get people who infiltrate it and they have this angry attitude and they turn it not into a protest but into a riot. And they destroy and oftentimes, they don't even know why they're angry. Somebody else has stirred them up to anger or to just having fun in some cases. I, I think sometimes they don't even know what the cause is. Uh, you read there at uh, Ephesus, uh, or was it Philippi, uh, where you know the, the greater part knew not why for they had come together. They got stirred up uh, by Demetrius and the silversmiths and so forth. They stirred them all up, and, uh, you know, for couple hours, they were yelling, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they didn't even understand what they'd come together for. And I think so often people get caught up in these protests. And they don't even know what they're there for. And they have different causes. They, they all bring out as soon as there's a protest, as soon as there's a riot, then you've got all the different causes represented there as they're each trying to promote their view. 
Now, we need to understand what is happening in our world. We need to understand how it affects us. Our world has become so polarized, and this is one reason that we, as the people of God, have become polarized in a number of areas. We've become very, very polarized. And that's not really good when we start despising someone who disagrees with us on something. The expression, your truth is not my truth, brethren, has some truth to it. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's truth and there's error. But from our world view, where you are listening only over here, or being fed only by this, and another person is being fed by something else, he sees truth here, this person sees truth over here. And so, your truth may not be my truth, has some truth to it. Now, this is why we have to get back to a proper foundation of real truth. Because it is either true or an error. I'm just speaking of in people's minds, they have different truths. In John 17, verse 17, it says, Your word is truth. Jesus said that. Uh, your word is truth. That was in the prayer that he was giving there on the night in which he was betrayed. Just before he was betrayed, he was praying. Uh, the real Lord's Prayer, as we sometimes say. He says, your word is truth. That means this, this book. This is what truth is. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, the entirety of your word is truth. That's Psalm 119, verse 160. And the 33rd Psalm, and verse 4, Psalm 33, verse 4, The word of the Lord is right. This is what's right. This is what we need to, to uh, live by. Now, let's get down to um, uh, so, some, some really more very specific things here. But first of all, let's understand the prince of the power of the air, and what he is doing to you, and what he's doing to me. And I think that if we don't realize that he's affecting us, then we're not going to be able to fight against him. You have to know what he's trying to do if you're going to fight against him, if you're going to, uh, you know, go to the right source. Uh, in Ephesians 2, let's just look at that. We're very familiar with it. Ephesians 2 and verse 1. We quote this so often, but I think it's so important to understand it because it is talking about the world in which we live, the world in which we swim, you might say. It's talking about our coworkers, our neighbors. It's talking about uh, television. It's talking about the Internet. It's talking about social media. It's talking about the music that we listen to, the movies, the, the television that we see. It's talking about even the news, which has become so polarized. He says, verse 1 of Ephesians 2, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, we once walked according to the course of this world, but brethren, I'm here to say that too many of us are still walking according to the course of this world. Yes, we've been baptized. Yes, we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Yes, we may pray every day. We may study the Bible every day. 
But then we get out our smartphones or our computers or turn on the television and we get caught up in the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's working at our neighbors. He's working all over the place. And if we allow him, he'll work through us. But the only way we can stop that is, if, first of all, if we're willing to admit that there's a problem here. And too often, we, we're baptized, we, we go along, we pay our tithes, we do all the things we're supposed to do in that way, and we don't realize the influences that are all around us. Do you think that Lot wasn't influenced by the society in which he lived? He's called righteous Lot. But when you look at the story of Lot's life, you realize that he was influenced heavily by the world in which he lived. When the angels came there and they wanted to know the men, the angels, the ones who had come there to rescue him, he offered his daughters. And, you know, that, that's hard to understand how someone would do that. He got drunk a couple occasions and, you know, was it Moab and Adam, uh, Ammon, I believe it was, were the end results of, of his uh, couple times getting drunk right after. This was after he was spared. Now, this is not a, uh, an advertisement for us to say that, well, we can do all these things. I think God requires a little bit more of us today because we have a lot more understanding in certain ways. But nevertheless, uh, we, we have to realize he was influenced by it. Remember Lot's wife. She couldn't turn her back on the world in which she came out of. She had children that were left behind, probably grandchildren, a nice home, nicely decorated and everything. And she had a very difficult time turning her back on all of that and escaping to a different world that God had called her to. A different world, a world away from Sodom and all the things that were going on there. You know, the course of this world. In Revelation 18 and verse 4, Revelation 18 and verse 4, it says here, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Come out of this whole Babylonian system. Not only the religious system that is going to be there at the end, but this whole system of Babylon, of, of division, of, of sin, of, of everything that we see about us. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you, you know, fall prey to the plagues that, that uh, Babylon is going to go through. In 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3, this is something that we, it seems like we used to use a scripture more often, quote it, and I think I used it recently, but it seems like we've, it's one of those scriptures that we, we kind of take for granted, we don't go to all the time. And of course, in, in some ways, this is a little bit taken out of context, because Paul is defending himself, and he's saying the weapons of our warfare, he's talking about 
himself. He's talking about those who are with him. But there's a principle here. He says, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You know, we have arguments over whether to carry or not. And we say carry, uh, we're talking about guns. And there, there are people who have very strong feelings on both sides of these things. But he says the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. He says casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bring every thought, every thought that we have into obedience, uh, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, how much are we monitoring how we think, how we react to things in this world? Are we monitoring our thoughts? Are we considering them? Or are we just allowing ourselves to go along with them and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled? And again, the context of that is really, he's talking about those who were uh, you know, fighting or criticizing against them. He's saying our, our weapons are not physical, but they're, they're spiritual weapons. But this applies to us as well, that our weapons should not be physical, but we should be able to pull down strongholds and cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We need to realize how Satan is influencing not only the world, but you and me. He's using the media, television, internet platforms. He's using celebrities. He's using music and politics and far more to influence us. I just saw a note that came from Mr. Peter Nathan uh, this last week, updating us on his trip in Africa there. And he's talking about the youth camp down in South Africa. And just has a paragraph. This is in the bulletin for those of you over in the UK. But he said, uh, quote, One point for parents, social media is a curse for the youth of our age. I think that's, that's pretty, pretty stern, isn't it? But I would agree with him 100%. It is a curse for the youth of our age, and there's so much evidence out there. I'm reading a book right now about irreversible, about how the Internet, social media, is affecting our teenage girls to where they were, they were girls all along, and all of a sudden they get to be about 13, 14, 15, or maybe even a little bit older, and suddenly they think they need to be a boy. And this is so different from the historical norm, uh, where it was mostly boys uh, wanting to be girls, and start very early in life. But these are, what they, they recognize is that social media and all these influencers out there where you have young people at a very vulnerable age where being, fitting in and being a part of things is so important and their, their self-image and everything. And you've got these influencers out there that are trying to take advantage of them and say, this is the solution. And what's interesting in the book, it brings out 
that the most of the parents, at least so far, in about page 50, have been very uh, open-minded about the LGBT movement and, and this sort of thing. But what they're seeing is their, their daughters not getting happier with their decisions, but becoming more and more uh, depressed as they go into this direction that people are trying to lead them. And, and it's kind of like mass hysteria, not mass, but it, it's, they find these pockets within high schools of, of six or seven or eight all of a sudden, and they're all friends. And it's like anorexia that, uh, you know, influences others. But it, it's, it's amazing what is happening out there. We need to understand that there are terrible things happening to our young people. They are lonely. They're, they're actually dating less. Uh, but it's all online. And that does not satisfy the the, the face-to-face, in-person uh, interaction that we need to have with one another. But he says here, as one presenter at the Living Youth Program in Belgium in 2018 stated, quote, Facebook is not your friend, end of quote. Mr. Peter Nathan says, such programs are really the enemy of today's youth, and parents need to be alert to the time their offspring spend on social media. And I've heard some authorities say that no child under the age of 14 should be given a, a cell phone or a, a smartphone or, or have access to it. And some of the executives of Silicon Valley do not allow their kids to have these things, and they, they send them to schools where there is no electronic uh, you know, type of a device. And they, they give them, you know, the, the traditional things because they know what this is doing to people. And in some cases, they'd like to turn around. But it's not just the young. We hear government leaders constantly bashed in the media, made fun of, ridiculed, and called names. And guess what, folks? We get caught up in it, don't we? Sometimes we get caught up in it. Is this God's way? Because you see, this is where real truth is. It's not over here or over here, but it's right here in the Word of God. Let's notice over in Acts, the 23rd chapter, Acts 23. This is where Paul was hauled before the, uh, the Sanhedrin, I believe it was, the council. And at that time, in verse 2, it says, The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Notice verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to strike contrary to the law? Now, he was right. He understood what the law was, and he understood that this command was not according to the law. But he called him a whitewashed uh, uh, what, sepulcher, whitewashed wall. Verse 4, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He quoted from the Old Testament. So the question is, are we so caught up in the politics of our age that we throw out disparaging uh, comments about other individuals. I don't mean that we we disagree with their policies or whatever, 
but to where we we are name calling and uh you know just just the type of thing well I'll, I'll leave it up to you to figure that out but do we disparage our leaders or do we follow the word of god because this has an effect on us if we god knew that if we disparaged our physical leaders we would also disparage our spiritual leaders and and there is an attitude and an approach that happens here. And I'm not trying to defend our leaders. I think that our leaders are making some terrible, terrible decisions. And I think that there are many who are hypocrites, and that's, you know, Christ called them hypocrites. I think that's something we can say. But we don't have to... Um, there's, some, there's, a, there's a line that we should not cross. Through politics and the media, Satan is threatening people's crowns over such simple things as masking, singing, vaccinations, quarantine, all kinds of things. He's manipulating our world. So let's talk about where we are in the living church of God. We recognize that controversial decisions need to be made. And we have appealed to Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter. I'm not going to turn there for sake of time, but Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 through 13. Uh, you can look that up, and it tells us how controversial, controversial decisions need to be made. And for the most part, you read that to people, and they, they just skip over it, and they go to what they want to, because they don't want to answer what is stated there. Also, Acts the 15th chapter, the controversy over circumcision, which was a huge controversy back then. God shows us how we are to settle uh, controversial issues. He makes it very clear there. So, let's look at our, our history just briefly. We've had to make decisions this year. We canceled the ministerial conference at the last minute. And there were some who perhaps thought that, well, that's not the right thing to do. We've already got a plan. And it was at the last minute, you might say. Some are already were on the way. But it's a good thing we did cancel it because we had people coming in from all over the world and getting back home was not always easy. Things were happening so quickly in the month of March, there in early March. Uh, Tua Lebay, uh, our minister there, or our leader, the one that we're using over there in uh, Thailand, happened to be here in Charlotte for the conference. His wife for a particular medical reasons, was back in the United Kingdom. And as a result, they were separated for seven months, eight months, whatever it was. He was able to get back to Thailand, but she couldn't get home to Thailand because she was blocked off. There were good reasons for canceling it, and God allowed us to cancel it at a late time when we wouldn't be hurt financially, which we could have been if we had done it earlier. But God worked that out. We've had other decisions that had to be made, and they were made uh, very late there. We made the decision to uh, change how we were going to keep Passover and the night to be much observed, not the symbols, but rather because we didn't know exactly what was happening at that time. We didn't know how dangerous the, the contagion was, except that we knew that there was a, a huge problem with it. So we said, okay, let's keep it locally in our own homes, which many people do around this world, year after year, the night to be much observed and so forth. Uh, we, we changed the way that we kept 
uh, Sabbath services that we were doing it online. And those were decisions that somewhat were made for us because the venues wouldn't allow it or the uh, governments would not allow us meeting together. But if the governments don't, then the venues are not going to go against those in most cases because they could be shut down entirely. So we had to make decisions. And some of those decisions may have been a little overreaction to something, or they may have been a perfect decision. When it came to the Feast of Tabernacles, we said, let's go local and small. And as it turned out, that was a, a right decision, I think, that most of us look back on and see that it was the right decision. We shut down transferring overseas, which, frankly, if people had their tickets and everything, they wouldn't have been able to go to some places. One popular place was Ireland. But that was shut down from outsiders. So there, there were a lot of things that we had to do. But we were using the principle of, of being prudent, Proverbs 22, verse 3. And, you know, prudence means acting with or showing care and thought for the future, looking ahead and showing some care and thought for it. We have study papers on masks and singing. You can go to the lcg.org website. And we have some study papers on these subjects that you can look up. Now, one of the things we decided was that, uh, at least for a time, we would not be singing because of the, the uh, you know, reports that, that it was much more transferable in terms of the virus. After some time, we've been able to look at what we're doing. Uh, I know that here in Charlotte, we have very good social distancing, as we did at most of the feast sites. I think all the feast sites, certainly in the United States, where we had people separated by at least six feet, sometimes ten feet or more. And when we're wearing masks, we, we've looked around we said, you know, there's a greater chance of the spread of this in fellowshipping before and after because we're wearing masks, but we're having to speak louder, especially if there's a, a full auditorium, and we are much closer because we want to hear. We haven't found that there's been a, a massive spread of the virus from our services. You know, there were a few people that got sick at the feast, but we think that they probably uh, didn't get it in services, but probably got it at restaurants or other activities where people were meeting uh, over meals and different things like that. We don't know for sure in every case. We know in some cases. But, you know, there were just a relatively small number of people. We've been meeting for months now, and we don't see the spread of it from services as best we can tell. And so we're going to make a modification, and that modification is that we'll have two songs at the beginning, one at the end, just as we're doing right now. Uh, we'll, you know, modify that later. Keep mo we keep monitoring the situation. But to say that we cannot sing at a moderate level while wearing a mask, we, we just don't think is, is reasonable at this point. And so we're saying that if the government or venue uh, restrictions uh, allow it, and we're proper masking, and when I say proper masking, not fake masking, because some people have masks that really, you know, they're lacy and different things where uh, you might as well not wear them, and, and many people wear it beneath their nose, and, you know, that's not really doing the job. Uh, it's not to protect you, it's to protect others. But, uh, you know, we're proper masking and proper distancing, and there's ventilation uh, that can be maintained. Uh, we're no longer going to restrict singing as uh, at an appropriate level. I say at an appropriate level. We don't have to be shouting, but we can sing.
and sing melodiously along, just as some have been uh, humming, uh, we're going to allow that. And uh, if you're not sure whether your location allows it, then, uh, you know, check into that. But our last song today will allow for people to, to sing. And I think that's going to be very encouraging because many of you have had the same thoughts that we've had here at headquarters. That so look, we're, we're fellowshipping, we're talking loud, and that can't be any worse than singing at a moderate level with a mask on. The biggest problem has been with choirs where there's been no social distancing and no masking and, you know, loud voices and, and that sort. That's where the biggest problem has been, not only in the actual performance, but in the, uh, in the practices that they have. So if, if we have someone especially vulnerable and you don't feel comfortable, then, you know, uh, make decisions accordingly. What about vaccinations? That's the biggest controversy coming up right now. Our next controversy. And it could cause some people to decide, well, I'm so, I don't like their stand on it, so I'm going to go elsewhere. Well, I'd say don't let someone take your crown because that may be where you end up if you're not careful. Uh, some people don't want to hold, uh, some, this is a statement of mine. Some people don't want to be told what to do until they want to be told what to do. You know, some people don't want anybody telling them, but then you get into a question like this and they want the church to make a definitive statement on it. And I'll add, and, and they're unforgiving in either instance. People are unforgiving in either instance. Right now, we have many concerns about vaccines. So let me answer a few questions. Question number one. Quote, I've heard that vaccines are made from aborted babies or unclean animals. Is that true? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Some vaccines are made, uh, and I say made, they're in the process of making them involved aborted fetuses, uh, really going back to the 1960s. And so it's not that there's going to be an aborted fetus put in you, but there's a process. And I don't understand it all. I'm not going to try to explain it. You can do your own research on it. But is abortion involved with some vaccines? And the answer is yes. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that have just come out, the answer is no. Uh, some vaccines have used unclean animals. But again, are they injecting the unclean animal, or is that the medium through which they, they replicate the virus and harvest the virus, and then it goes from, you know, from one to the next to the next? But, so there's, it's pretty far apart from that. But you know, some people would say, well, we, we shouldn't do that. And I'm not saying we should uh, have a, a vaccine from you know, a monkey or chimpanzee or something. I think there's some dangers in that. But nevertheless, uh, you know, at the same time, people will take a transfusion, which comes from an unclean source. I mean, if you take blood from me, I'm an unclean animal. I'm not just animal, human. And put it in you, there, there's a danger there, isn't, isn't there? I know at least one person that died as a result of that because they weren't properly screening and, you know, hepatitis and destroying a person's liver. And... Thousands of people have died that way. But at the same time, there are situations where if you don't have, uh, you know, a, a, a transfusion, you die anyway. So people, 
you know, they, they make decisions based on the lesser of, of two evils in some cases. Uh, there are people walking around, probably a few in the church, with pig valves, heart valves, because pigs are very similar to us genetically and, and, uh, genetically and, and sometimes in behavior. But anyway, uh, there's, um, uh, you know, that's a decision that people make. It's a decision that people make. Do we condemn them for it? I hope we don't. Uh, I hope that if you think you know what you'll do, that if you ever have to face that, you'll follow through whatever that decision is. So the, the vaccines, some are made with animal tissue of one sort or another, whether it's human or uh, uh, some other animal, some are not. Uh, my understanding from everything I've read is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are not. Question number two, is it a sin to be vaccinated? Is it a sin to be vaccinated? Well, you know, essentially, our stand on this whole subject has not changed. Our stand is, is the same as it's been for a long, long time in the Church of God. Here's a, a letter that we uh, answer when people uh, write in and ask about it. It says, Dear friend, thank you for your question regarding vaccinations or immunization. This subject has been a concern of many. However, neither the Bible nor the living church of God teaches that immunization is a sin. Now, I suppose there might be some who disagree with that, and you're welcome to your own personal opinion as long as you keep it to yourself. But that's been the stance of the church for decades. In fact, the church as a spiritual body neither proves nor disapproves any of the many medical procedures extant today. Now, that sentence, by the way, we probably will change. And I'll tell you why we may change it. Because when we say uh, it disapproves any of the medical procedures extant today, now they consider uh, uh, changing one's gender or sex uh, as a medical procedure or abortion as a medical procedure, and we certainly do not support those types of medical procedures. But we're talking about sickness, a, a real legitimate sickness of some sort. Uh, we don't tell people that they can't take insulin or they, they have to take insulin. We don't tell them whether to have chemotherapy if they have cancer, uh, which, which, by the way, uh, that is devastating to the physical body, uh, uh, much more so than than normally a vaccination would be. I say normally because sometimes vaccinations have caused some very bad reactions. I understand that. I understand it very well. My wife does working with severely handicapped children uh, where, where one child after being vaccinated was, you know, severely handicapped. But those are generally the, the exceptions. And again, people have to make decisions based on, uh, you know, various uh, criteria. Uh, risk and benefit. Uh, but it, it, essentially, the church as a spiritual body neither approves nor disapproves of the many medical procedures that are extant today. I, I'd like to read here a little bit from an article uh, in what was called the Ambassador College Portfolio. This is the, the newspaper at Ambassador College, the, the student newspaper. This one is from October the 2nd, 1984. 
and the title is Quarantine Ends After Three Weeks. Ambassador's quarantine for red measles ended for 70 students Wednesday, September 26, after a three-week bout that seemed more like three years to some. I've got a copy of it here. You, you can see this. This is 1984. Uh, Mr. Armstrong was not only alive, but he was in Pasadena at the time. His picture is right underneath the article. And the picture has to do with the faculty reception for the incoming students. And this is September, and August or early September would have been the faculty reception. Uh, it's, it's unlikely that he was not aware of what was going on here. Um, as it turned out, only five students contracted the measles, but efforts to keep the problem from spreading had close to 70 students in quarantine at one time or another. Uh, faced with the problem of being quarantined on campus beyond this year's Feast of Tabernacles and missing weeks of classes, almost all the students who are not already immune to the disease opted for inoculation, which was administered Wednesday, September 26th. So that's the end of the three weeks. So the quarantine began at the beginning, uh, the first week of uh, September, uh, by officials from the Pasadena Health Department. About 15 students remain in quarantine, some of them declining the inoculation due to the potential for allergic reactions to the vaccine. Now, there are certain things that we could learn from this particular passage. One is, here is a, a judgment that was made by the church when Mr. Armstrong had been putting the church back on the track on a number of issues, uh, certainly uh, the a systematic theology project was, was uh, he, he rejected that, uh, which which had to do with uh, with health and different things. But uh, here was a decision, a judgment that was made that the students could be vaccinated right there on the Ambassador College campus, so they go to the feast and so they would not miss more uh, classes there at Ambassador College. So here are some observations we can make from it. This was an example of vaccination on the Ambassador College campus after 1979 when Mr. Armstrong began putting things back on track. Second observation, only five students came down with measles, but 70 were quarantined. This was precautionary isolation without symptoms. See, some people say we should only quarantine people if they have symptoms, but here's an example of a judgment that was made at Ambassador College, the headquarters of the, uh, the Worldwide Church of God at the time, while Mr. Armstrong was there, and the decision was made to quarantine people, not with symptoms, but without symptoms, but they knew they had been exposed to it, and the potential was there to spread it to others. That counters the argument of dissenters that the only approach is to quarantine when symptoms are present. Thirdly, quarantine was imposed by the college first before the government stepped in. And this counters one more narrative that unless the government forces to do things like quarantine symptomless people, we should resist. And the fourth uh, takeaway is that some students chose to remain quarantined, uh, 15 students there, over vaccination. So there was free choice. It was a decision that people had to make. And 
the ones who chose not to be vaccinated weren't kicked out of Ambassador College. Those who were who chose vaccination, they weren't kicked out. It was a personal choice, a medical decision that they had to make for themselves. We need to understand that there are some difficult questions that people will come up with. Will there be a lockdown where uh, you have to be vaccinated? People worried about that. Uh, I think what we're going to see is that there may not be a government mandate, but there will be mandates by schools, by employers. And whether you can go on an airplane, whether you can go into a restaurant, these are things that we will likely face. And they're decisions that you have to make. Change job, take your kids out of school, go to a different school, be vaccinated, whatever it might be. But I think we need to understand that the government, in some cases, if you disagree with them, can take children out of the home. And there, there are going to be decisions that people have to make that may not be comfortable decisions. We may not want to make those decisions, but in, in some cases, if they threaten to take your children out of your home, they're going to take them out, and then they will vaccinate them, and then you'll have to get them back, which can be, take time or you can go along with the vaccination. Now, that's a decision you're going to have to make. I'm not going to make it for you. The church is not going to make it for you. Those are personal decisions. That's been our, our stance on this, uh, you know, for, for decades in the church of God. These are personal decisions. We, we don't disfellowship people, haven't disfellowship people, as far as I know, as long as I've been in the ministry, for decisions that they make when it comes to medical things. I think there was a time uh, early on when it was certainly frowned upon uh, by, by the church in some respects, but we, we allowed people to make those decisions. Again, there are other decisions people make, blood transfusions, chemotherapy, EpiPens for allergic reactions, anesthesia for operations, pain relievers, and then there are all the natural therapies that are not always so natural. There's a passage of Scripture, I won't take time to turn to it for time, but in 2 Samuel 24, verses 12 to 14, David had sinned by numbering the people. And he was, it was not just uh, taking a census, there's nothing wrong with the census for the right reasons, but he was trying to look at his army and see, there, there were issues there that putting his faith in his armies and so forth. And God gave him three choices. And you can read those three choices, and there wasn't a good one there. Three choices, three evils, you might say. But God said he could do this, this, or this. And finally, David said, well, I'd rather put my hands, or put my, the decision in God's hands than putting our lives in the hands of our enemies and, and uh, others. And so he chose what really was the lesser of, of three evils. And I say evils, that's a, maybe not the right word here because there are choices that God gave him. But sometimes we have to make decisions where neither one of them is what we really would like to do. I often use the expression, uh, you know, some people ask us questions and it's kind of like, shall I shoot my grandmother in the morning or the afternoon? Well, neither is right, neither is good. And sometimes we are faced with those things in this life, aren't we? We need to see the big picture. 
And let me just, uh, I've got more that I wanted to give here, but let me just uh, refer to Titus as a last final scripture here. Titus, uh, the first chapter. And and I bring this out here because I, I realize that no matter what decision we make, no matter how we word something, there will be those who will try to find something wrong about it. We are sincerely, as a church, trying to make decisions based on the best knowledge that we have, based on the scriptures that we have. And so, like that sentence I brought out there where, you know, we support medical procedures, now we have to say something so that it's worded in such a way that we don't support abortion, we don't support assisted dying, we don't, you know, suicide, we don't support uh, transgender operations and that sort of thing, or or, uh, drug therapy for that. We have to change that because we we want to cover ourselves because there's somebody that's always looking for something to say, gotcha. And here in Titus, the first chapter in verse 10, says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's telling Titus, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. I'm going to skip down here to... Verse 15 and 16, where he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Uh, But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. In other words, if, if we have the right frame of mind, and we read something we understand what the church is saying. We don't look at a scripture where we say we support medical procedures, you know, of of all sorts and say, ah, they're supporting abortion because we know the church doesn't support abortion or assisted suicide or transgender operations or drugs. We understand that. So the pure, all things are pure. But to someone who is looking for a way to criticize the church, they'll find it. You know, sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to word a sentence. And we go back and forth for, for sometimes hours just trying to find a way to word it so that it is, it is uh, bulletproof, you might say. And I finally have come to the conclusion that, yes, we want to be careful how we word things, but we don't have to spend forever because no matter how we word it, no matter how we state it, somebody is going to find fault with it. And, you know, if, if they're not pure in heart and mind, if they don't have the right attitude of looking for the positive, if they're looking for something negative, they'll find it no matter how we word it. And so, brethren, we have to make decisions. And, and one decision that we, we've made here is that our, our stance on vaccines are the same that they've always been. Just because we're in a pandemic doesn't change our stance on it is still a a personal decision that you have to make. What we are going to say is that don't get on Facebook and fight and argue over it and throw stones and put somebody in the category, well, they're not converted because they don't believe the way that I do. I did see a thread that went on Facebook here recently uh, coming out of Texas, and I I have to say I was pleased to see that here was a, a genuine conversation between members for the most part, I guess, with looking at facts and going back and forth, but it was not it was not 
with with anger and resentment and hatred. It was it was just discussion in the right way. That's not the way it always is on these social media platforms. But the fact is that God tells us that we have to answer uh, to him. And why should we judge another man's servant? They're not my servants. They're not your servants. They're God's servants. And so why can't we just accept the fact that people see things different for, for a variety of reasons? And if this person chooses to be vaccinated and this person chooses not to be vaccinated, why can't we love each other? And why cannot we uh, accept each other as this is a servant of God, this is a servant of God, and I may not agree with the decision that person's made for myself, but that person's making a decision based on facts that apply to him. And uh, that the same facts may not apply to me. Some people may have uh, it may be greater faith, it may be greater understanding of, of what we're dealing with. But brethren, let's recognize that Satan is trying to divide us. He will try to take your crown, and he's not there to replace that crown on somebody else. He's there to displace that crown uh, forever. And he's going to use human beings, and he's going to use all the tools at his disposal to take your crown. Brethren, we have a wonderful and a great work to do. And we have to get on with that work that God has given us to do. But let's not let Satan come along and use other individuals and other means to take our crown.